We are going to finish our series today. We're on week four of our series called Prepared for Persecution. You know, we need to be ready to face persecution because we know that in the end times, before Jesus comes, things are going to get more difficult. They're going to get hard, and we need to be ready because it could very well be that we are the generation that sees Jesus return, and we want to be the sort of people who are going to be able to handle that because it's going to be difficult. We want to be strong and able to persevere through persecution and be prepared. We basically have been trying to make sure that we're not the shallow soil from the parable of the sower. Jesus in chapter 13 of Matthew told the parable of the sower, and we've mentioned this each week, and we just don't want to be the the shallow soil typified here by verse 21 of chapter 13, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. We don't want to be those who quickly fall away because trouble or persecution is going to come. Life is full of trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. If it's the end times or not, you're going to have trouble. So we need to be able to persevere, be able to last through those difficulties. How do we do that? Well, by knowing the biblical teachings, by believing we can follow those teachings, and then by practicing on today's light and momentary troubles. That's been what we've been covering this week. We are going to finish up by talking about keeping our eyes on the prize, keeping our eyes, seeing the big picture vision. We're going to talk about keeping your eye on the prize. If we get caught up in just the daily problems and the daily issues, we're going to miss the big picture. We need to keep our eye on the prize. Persevering and being prepared for persecution means not getting caught up in the little things and the small world, but seeing the big picture and understanding that sacrificing the small is worth it for the the big picture. Last week, we talked about Peter He had false confidence. He said, I will not deny you even if I have to die with you. And of course, he meant that. He was willing to whack people in the head with a sword and go to battle. But he ended up confused and unsure and denied Jesus three times in that same episode. But then, you know, what happened after that, Peter, in the course of less than two months, Peter was reinstated by Jesus, brought back into a a right relationship with him. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was used on the day of Pentecost to bring the gospel message to Jerusalem, the very place where he was running in fear less than two months before denying the Lord. Now he's proclaiming the Lord. And this is all recorded in Acts chapter two, but let me just give you one verse of that. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, this is in Peter's speech to all the people that he was so scared of less than two months before. He proclaims this out loud. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So he was not shy anymore. He was not scared of anybody anymore. He was willing to live for Christ and proclaim Christ. And he had been completely changed from where he was at just less than two months before. So how did that happen? 
How did Peter transition so dramatically and so quickly? What happened? Well, a lot of things actually happened. The first thing that I think is significant, I got three things that really changed Peter in this short period of time. The first thing is he saw the risen Christ. He saw Jesus alive and he realized that Jesus had conquered death, that death was not the master of Jesus, but Jesus overcame death. And because Jesus overcame death, Peter could also overcome death. And it was a big, big deal. You know, to conquer death is a big deal. In Peter's life, this was a massively shocking experience that Jesus actually rose from the grave. He was alive. Peter got to see him, got to talk to him. He was just completely shocked by the fact that Jesus was alive and had conquered death. And Peter realized that death was not something to fear anymore. And I think it's so important for us now that it's 2,000 years later and it's kind of old news that Jesus rose from the grave and that he conquered death and that we can have everlasting life. It's kind of gotten to be old news. But I got to tell you, do not get over the fact that through Christ, you have everlasting life. Don't let that fade into the background and be just saying, yeah, you know, well, whatever, you know, it's just no big deal. We get everlasting life, you know, like I also get to go have lunch today. You know, I guess I'm thankful for all the little things like lunch and everlasting life in the paradise of God with Christ. It's a big deal. I think I'm fortunate in one respect to not have believed in an afterlife. I grew up not believing that there was anything more, and I was just completely thrilled just to be alive and to experience this life, the magical wonder that it was. And then to find out that you don't have to live just this life, but there's everlasting life, there's eternity with God, it was just mind-blowing. I want you to not take for granted everlasting life. Let's look at Romans 6, verse 13. Just as a quick reference to this, says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. When we know we've been brought from death to life, we've been brought from the potential for destruction, for everlasting punishment, we've been brought out of that into everlasting life, man, we got to be thankful and we should offer ourselves to the God who gives us everlasting life to do things for him, not to do evil things and bad things, but to do good things for God. That's what we should do. So don't take everlasting life for granted. It is a big deal. Peter saw the risen Christ. It became extremely real to him that when Jesus was talking about everlasting life, he meant you don't die and you live forever. And so the fear of death was now gone for Peter. The second major thing that happened to Peter during this less than two month period is that his failures were forgiven and he was given a second chance to succeed. Remember, Peter was so confident that he would not betray Jesus. He would not deny Jesus, and yet he did. And in the book of Luke, it mentions that when Peter had denied him three times, that they made eye contact, that Jesus and Peter made eye contact. So Jesus gave him a look from off in a distance. You know, Peter wasn't right there. It was a ways away, but they made eye contact and Peter realized, oh no, I failed. And Jesus saw me fail. He knew I was going to, and I did. And he was, he was cut 
deep. It says he wept bitterly. He felt so bad about that. And yet, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he meets with Peter and reinstates him. He forgives him and reinstates Peter. And now Peter gets a second chance. You know, Judas did not get a second chance. Judas was dead. Peter had denied Jesus three times, but Peter gets reinstated. He's thankful to be back on the team and he's thankful to be on the field. He's just glad to be there. He thought it was over because he had denied the Lord out loud. He called down curses on himself, denying the Lord. I mean, he just knew he had failed dramatically, but Jesus forgave him and reinstated him. So he was thankful for every second of it. And there was no way he was going to cave to fear ever again because he didn't want to go back to that place. So the second thing was Peter's failures were forgiven and he was given a second chance to succeed. And then the third thing that happened to Peter is he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Don't underestimate the power of Acts 1.8, the significance of that verse. Jesus, the risen Christ, is talking to his disciples and he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Peter received the baptism of the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost in the morning, and then he preached this great message to thousands of people in Jerusalem, and that baptism in the Holy Spirit gave him the power from God to be a witness for Christ. So we see three very powerful things that happened. First, Peter saw the risen Christ. He realized that Jesus had conquered death, so he knew that he didn't have to fear death either. He realized that his failures were forgiven and he was given a second chance. And he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, empowered by God to be a witness for Christ. These are the three things that made the difference in the transition from, from Peter having no vision for how to follow Christ to being able to serve Jesus in powerful ways. And these three things are available to all of us as well. We can realize that Christ has risen from the grave. It's got to be real to us. We've got to grab hold of it and get an understanding of it and realize like, you know, now that I'm getting older, I'm going to live a lot longer. But as I'm getting older, I'm thinking this thing is going to end. But hallelujah, there's everlasting life in Christ. Have that be real in you. Understanding that we've been forgiven, that we're not worthy, but we've been made worthy and allowed to participate in the kingdom of God. That's a humbling thing, but we don't want to fail again. We want to succeed. We want to receive the forgiveness of God so that we can succeed. And then, of course, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is something to seek out for yourself, to try to grab hold of, to be open to in your heart, to receiving just that miraculous infilling of the Spirit from God. It changes you. I got to tell you that it's something you have to experience for yourself and walk through because for me, it was the heart change that I needed. I had a critical spirit. I found fault with all kinds of stuff. I was very small-minded. The infilling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit changed the way I saw the world. So these are three things that changed Peter that we can also grab hold of. So Peter had experience with both winning the spiritual battle and with profoundly failing Jesus. He was winning the spiritual battle. He did amazing, wonderful things for Christ, but he also failed profoundly. So if Peter says, let me tell you what makes the difference between success and failure. 
Should we listen? He has great experience with this. And he tells us the secret to success in 2 Peter chapter 1. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is amazing. Uh, So great that he did that for us. So 2 Peter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 9. It says this. This is Peter again, the one who denied the Lord, but who also spoke so boldly and powerfully on the day of Pentecost. Peter says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So we see the secret to success, according to Peter here, is these eight things. We have a a sermon series that was done a couple years ago called The Effective and Productive Life. You can go back and we'll do eight weeks on that. So if you want to go back and listen to that or watch those, you can do that. That's powerful, powerful stuff. But let's look at that verse nine again. That was the tough one. Here, Peter says, but whoever does not have them, the ones who are failing to have these eight things, they're not going to be effective and productive. Those people are nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So where does failure come from? Failure to follow Christ, failure to be effective and productive for the kingdom of God. Where does failure come from? It comes from being nearsighted and blind. So what that means is not having any vision. Being nearsighted means you only see the things very close, but you don't see the big picture. You don't have distant vision. You only have close vision. This is describing somebody that only sees things from their own perspective. They only understand a very small world, the things that they're dealing with, but they can't see beyond that into eternal things, into spiritual things, into godly things, into kingdom things. You can only see their personal circumstances, having trouble making my car payment. And that's all they can see. They can't see beyond that into the big things, the powerful things, the profound things of God. So nearsighted and blind means they can't see the big picture. And this includes taking forgiveness and their position with God for granted forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins, forgetting that they don't really deserve to be part of the kingdom of God, but it's by grace that they have been welcomed in to the kingdom of God, welcomed into the goodness of God, the family of God, the security that comes with having everlasting life. We don't deserve that. We don't belong here. It's only through the forgiveness, the grace of God that we access by faith that we can have these things. So they're not remembering that they've been cleansed from their past sins. They're taking forgiveness for granted. And that's a serious problem. So we don't want to have a small-minded vision, just seeing our own little world and our own little problems, and then taking forgiveness for granted, our relationship with God for granted, and just saying, no, well, I'm in, I'm good. We don't want that. Instead, we want to have clear, 
big picture vision. If we have a clear big picture vision, we'll be prepared for persecution because we'll be willing to sacrifice the little things of our life for the bigger things of God. So we want to keep our eye on the prize, have big picture vision. What are we fighting for? Here's the short answer. We're fighting for meeting Jesus and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the short answer. We want to do right by God in this life and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to fail God. We don't want to crumble. We want to walk by faith, walk courageous and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So we must trade being nearsighted and blind like Peter did. He was nearsighted and blind before Jesus was crucified. And then when Jesus was crucified, everything got thrown off. He was not ready. We have to trade nearsighted and blind for big picture vision. That's what we need to do. Trade being nearsighted and blind for having big picture vision so we can be prepared for persecution. So what are we trying to do? And why is it worth it? What are we trying to do at Good Hope Church, the kingdom of God? What are we trying to do? Well, we're trying to advance the kingdom of God. For us, that means help people find Jesus, help them grow as disciples, and help them make a difference for the kingdom of God themselves. That's what Good Hope Church is all about. Why is it worth it? Why is sacrificing and being willing to go through hardships for this, why is it worth it? Well, because heaven and hell are real. Because abundant life and horrendous evil and suffering are real. Because Jesus has rescued us. So we need to help Jesus rescue others. And besides, we can't lose and we receive everlasting life. It's worth it. I remember years ago, before I became a church planter, I was talking to the Minnesota District of the Assemblies of God church planting director at the time. And he asked me in our little interview to see if I would be able to be a church planter. He said, what are you willing to do in order to succeed at planting a church. And I thought for a half a second and said, well, whatever it takes. And he said, all right. He said, there are people that fail and people that succeed. The people that fail, give me a list of things they're willing to do. And the people that succeed say, whatever it takes. And that's where we need to be. We need to be willing to do whatever it takes. And one of the things that it takes is learning lessons, is gaining wisdom. One of the things that Trinette and I, my wife Trinette and I learned in ministry years ago was that a good rule of thumb is to realize that every yes is a no. Everything you say yes to means you're saying no to something else. Every person you say yes to often means you're saying no to other people. So, you know, just for a a super, super simple example, let's say you're having lunch and you're ordering off the menu. If you say yes to one thing, you know, I'm going to have this for lunch. Well, then you're not having the other stuff on the menu for lunch. You say yes to one thing, it means no to something else. And this is very, very true from a ministry perspective. And I don't know that a lot of Christians understand that, that every yes is a no. For example, uh, when we were new here in Cloquet, And we were just starting off, you know, we were averaging about 70 people and then that was great. But we had people coming to church who said, I I really like it. And I really like that it's small. And our response was always, well, it's not going to be small for long. And don't miss what you're saying when you say you're happy that the church is small. What are you saying? If you say yes to, to the church being small, what are you saying no to? If you say yes to small church, you're saying no to including other people in coming to church. And so I had 
you know, in the foundations class, I'd talk about the, you know, the I like my lifeboats roomy story, which you can uh, check out the foundations class on the website if you want to find that. So I challenge you to go through the whole class and see if you can find that part. Uh, But here's the deal. If you want your church to be small, you know, if it's Good Hope Church or any other church, then I challenge you, write down the names of the people that you know who don't know Christ. Write down their names and realize that these are the people you're trying to exclude from the gospel that you want to have go to hell so that you can have a small church service. Nice little close-knit group. No one who recognizes that they're excluding people from heaven would say, I want to have a small church. They would say, hey, let's crowd this thing up. I don't care if I have an uncomfortable church experience. I want other people to go to heaven too. So every yes is a no, and we have to understand what we're saying yes to and what that implies for everything else. So we don't want to say yes to small church and say no to including others in the gospel. We don't want to say yes to petty squabbles and say no to humble service to God. You know, I'll trade my personal comfort for someone else's salvation. Is that something you're willing to do? To trade your personal comfort for somebody else's salvation. And how far does that go? How much sacrifice is worth it? How far did Jesus go? I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 11 in a little bit, but let me give a qualification. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the great heroes of the faith and things that were sacrificed in powerful ways. But another thing that I learned along the lines of every yes is a no, something that was a little counterintuitive was that, of course, everything is worth sacrificing for the kingdom of God, but don't sacrifice things that are not required of you to sacrifice. Some things I gave up thinking I was giving them up for the kingdom of God, but I was just doing my own thing. My wife always feels bad about this, but I skipped every birthday. I skipped every school concert program, anything. If there was any church activity going on, I skipped anything because church was first. And I didn't realize that I was kind of messing my priorities up and I needed to teach the congregation to take care of some things for me so I could take care of my family. And that was me giving something up, these family moments. I was sacrificing them, but it was an error. I actually shouldn't have done that. I was doing the wrong thing. So you need to have some wisdom in what you sacrifice for the kingdom of God, because sometimes you sacrifice something that God hasn't asked you to sacrifice, and then you're going to miss out. You're going to be weakened, and you might have some serious problems, because that is a form of blindness, nearsightedness as well. How far Jesus was willing to go to sacrifice for others, because he saw the big picture. He understood what he was doing. It wasn't about whether or not he felt comfortable. It was he had his eye on the prize, his eye on the goal, his eye on understanding that his father's will was greater and he needed to be willing to sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he was willing to do it, but he wouldn't have been able to do that without a big picture vision. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a nice big picture vision of people serving God by faith. So I'm going to read all of chapter 11. I want us to just drink this in. It's an inspiring chapter. There are so many people talked about here, and we want to emulate that behavior and that vision 
willing to sacrifice the short-term immediate things for the greater things of God. Hebrews 11. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, He condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was able to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. 
By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So we see this incredible progression all the way from the creation to now, the faith of people who are living for God and seeing the big picture. And then the next three verses, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, bring the call. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we see Jesus had that big picture vision. He had his eyes on the prize. He scorned the shame and then sat down on the right hand of the father, right hand of the throne of God. Let us persevere. Let us understand what is going on so that we can stand strong. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Like Peter, we need to believe that Jesus has conquered death. We need to recognize that we have been forgiven and given a second chance. And we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to succeed. So let's trade our weakness for strength. Let's trade our guilt for a right standing with God and an understanding of who we are in Christ. Let's trade the distractions of this world for productive service. Trade fear for faith. Trade your own comfort for other people's benefit. Trade squabbles for grace and love. That all means let's trade nearsightedness and blindness for vision for the kingdom of God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. We thank you for your great plan of redemption. We thank you, Lord, for the kindness that you have shown us for the grace that you have shown us. And we respond to that grace by faith, trusting in you, trusting Lord Jesus, that your blood is sufficient for our forgiveness. We thank you for being willing to pay that price. And we trust 
also that by your stripes, Lord Jesus, we are healed. So we thank you for healing and for forgiveness that we can be made whole so that we can serve you, not caught up in the short-term things of this life, but having vision for eternity, seeing your kingdom and seeing the value of serving you and sacrificing for you in this life, because we know what is coming for those who honor you and who serve you. So father, we thank you for welcoming us into your family and giving us everlasting life and empowering us to live for you in this life. Lord bless us in that way. In Jesus name, I pray. Amen.